Jesus had a conversation with his disciples at one point, and he said this to them. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This week has been quite the week, right? Lots of emotion, uh, lots of uh, tension, um, for some fear, for others relief, um, awaiting the result. Now you know I'm talking about the Browns-Ravens game, <laughs> right? I mean, that was me, Thursday night, right? Browns versus the Ravens. I mean, we're 0-9. I'm hoping for a result, a win. Um, I think we needed that this morning. Um, but seriously, right? A, a crazy week in, in, on many fronts. Um, you know, you had some churches on Monday night who were calling prayer vigils. You had other churches, I know of one in particular in Harlem, New York, that called a prayer vigil Wednesday night because of the, the election. And so you have a lot of these different views and different things going on and lots of emotion. And we've been talking about the past week, what do you do when the person that you love becomes hard to love? What do you do? And last week we looked at Paul's letter and we opened up chapter 2 and he says, what you do when that person you love becomes hard to love is you love them anyway. You love them anyway. I mean, what do you do when you find out that the person sitting next to you during a living community evening is someone that voted for Donald Trump? Or what do, you, what do you do when you find out the person sitting next to you this morning is someone that voted for Hillary or someone that didn't vote? What do you do when that little rug rat in your home, whom you love so much, is just driving you absolutely insane? What do you do, right? What do you do when it's hard to love? Well, Paul tells us that in the midst of conflict in the midst of struggle in the midst of suffering and in this context of Philippians it's really they're suffering for the cause of Christ and he says in that moment when it becomes difficult to love you love that person anyway you lower yourself to lift that person up but that begs the next question how in the world do you do that (laughs) I mean seriously that's not natural Right In that moment when that person becomes difficult to love, my natural response is not to love that person, but to prove to them that I'm right and they're wrong. Right? Or whatever it might be. I mean, in that moment, it's very unnatural for us to feel love toward that person. So how do we do that? I believe Paul helps answer that question for us. The question of how, as we continue through his letter to the Philippians, specifically chapter 2. So if you'll join me in Philippians chapter 2, and to get the full context, I want to begin in reading verse 1, and we'll read to verse 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. He writes them, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. At the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where you look matters. Let me give you an example. Early in our married life, Andrew and I lived in Springfield, Ohio. And there was a mall called the Upper Valley Mall. And on occasion, we would go walking through this mall just to kind of hang out and be together and talk. We actually did this at the Eastgate Mall on Friday. And it's just been something that we've done. And so I remember in this particular walking situation where we were walking around the Upper Valley Mall and we were leaving the mall and it was one of those where you kind of have the breezeway, right, where you go through the first set of doors, then the breezeway, then you go through the next set of doors and you're outside. You with me? Okay. So we're talking and for some reason, somehow, I don't know how, still to this day, we got through the first set of doors entering the breezeway and I got distracted somehow and got offline. Got I don't know how, but I went through the first set of doors into the breezeway, and for whatever reason, poof, I hit smack dab into the glass window as hard. I mean, I don't, it hurt like crazy. And what makes the story even better is there, there was a little, little older lady who was sitting there in the breezeway. As soon as that happened, she looks up at me and she goes, oh, like that. It just like to make my humiliation worse, right? Where you look matters. It matters where you look. I remember, too, a couple years ago, we changed life insurance companies. And one of the things that they wanted to do was send a home nurse to us and take our blood, have our blood drawn so they could run all these tests and all this. And so the home nurse comes into our house and she sits down at the table and she says, do you have any problems with blood? I'm like, I don't think so. I think I'm cool with it. So she sits down and she's like, well, just hold your arm out. I'm like, okay, cool. And she starts taking the blood. I'm looking right at it. Poof, I was gone. Poof, out. Where you look matters. Where you don't look matters. And I think that's exactly what Paul is trying to communicate to the Philippian church. In the midst of crisis, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering for the cause of Christ, it's very important where you look, where your focus is, where your gaze is. And that's the principle for us this morning that we're going to see from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. When Jesus is your joy, and it's hard to love, yes, you love anyway, but when Jesus is your joy, and it's hard to love, you look at Jesus. You look at Him. The one who lowered Himself to lift you up. And I think that's Paul's point. In the midst of suffering, whether you're suffering for the cause of Christ or in the midst of crisis, whatever it might be, some kind of conflict, I think the application, the principle for us is this, that when it becomes hard to love that person that's difficult to love, you love anyway. How do I do that, Paul? You do that by looking at Christ. 
Not by looking at the person that's hard to love. <laughs> if you keep looking at them, that, it becomes all more difficult. But you begin looking at Jesus. That's his point. You look at Jesus. And in these verses, verses 5 through 11, there is so much theology, Christology, truth that's wrapped up in these verses about Christ. But we don't want to, overall, we don't want to miss the overall purpose of why Paul writes and communicates these words to the Philippian church. His overall purpose is to help them understand, listen, in that moment of crisis when you're suffering, and in this case, again, suffering for the name of Christ, it's easy to look at one another, it's easy to cast blame, whatever it might be. But he says, no, you, you need to look at Jesus. Where you look matters, church. Because he's going to say Jesus is the prototype, he's the paradigm, he's the pattern for loving when it's hard to love. And he begins in verse 5 by telling us where this resource comes from. How do we love when it's hard to love? In verse 5, look at it with me, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind of Christ among yourselves. Literally, he's saying, have this set of attitudes. Have this mindset, this way of thinking. It's about a disposition. And, and by that, it means it's a, it's a fixed, predetermined way of thinking that determines your response. In essence, he's saying, church, when crisis, suffering, fear, struggles come, when it's hard to love, you have a disposition. This is your disposition. Well, where does that come from? It comes from the mind of Christ. And the disposition that the church should have when it becomes hard to love is a disposition of humility. Now, it's not a hollow humility. Jesus said what? I am the way, the what? And the life. The truth and the life. And John, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, looked at Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 18, and he described him as someone who was full of grace and full of truth. And Jesus said, your word, God, is truth. So this is not a hollow humility. Really, it's truth wrapped up in humility. Or humility wrapped around truth. And we need to understand that when Paul is talking about have this mind among yourselves. This mind he's talking about, where does it come from? It comes specifically from the Spirit of Christ. In a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he said this, we have, 1 Corinthians 2.16, says that we have the mind of Christ. Talking about believers, we have the mind of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, he says, those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. You see, the Holy Spirit in you is a gift of God's grace to you. And so in that moment when it becomes hard to love, yes, it's absolutely unnatural for you to want to love that person back. That's why it takes something supernatural for you to love when it's hard to love. So God in His grace says, I will give you my Spirit, place my Spirit inside you, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? He will produce in you love, joy, peace. It's not you producing it. It's God through His Spirit producing it in you. So step back from this for a moment. When that little one is driving you crazy and the last thing you want to do is love them or serve them, when you continue to love them and serve them, that's the Spirit of Christ producing that love through you as a follower of Jesus. And when you want to post whatever you want to post and you want to lash out in anger for whatever reason, what keeps you from lashing out but instead offering love and truth and humility, that's the Spirit of Christ in you doing that. That's supernatural that takes place. 
And what Paul is saying, listen, in order for you to have this disposition, church, of humility and love, when it becomes hard to love, you have to have the mind of Christ, which comes from the Spirit of Christ. It's the disposition of Jesus when he serves his disciples and washes their feet, knowing full well Judas is about to betray him. And he stoops low and he washes his feet anyway. That's the disposition of the church when it's hard to love, when conflict and crisis come. But here's here's the problem. I think often many of us don't get to experience the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us because we quit too soon. We bail too soon. It's just easier to quit, to walk away, to run, whatever it might be, rather than to stay and watch the Spirit of God in me do something supernatural that I can't do in my own power. And Paul's saying, listen, you can't do this on your own. You have to have this mind. Where, where does it come from? It's yours in Christ. So that moment when you surrender your life to Jesus, God in His grace gives you His Spirit who dwells in you to produce in you this love that you can't produce on your own to love when it's hard to love. So what's it look like, Paul? We have this resource. If you're a follower of Christ, you have the resource needed to love when it's hard to love. It's the Spirit of Christ who teaches you the things of Christ, producing in you the mind of Christ. What's it look like, Paul? He goes on in verse 6. He says, who, referring to Christ, though he was in the form of God. That word form specifically speaks to a form that never changes. It never alters. And what he's literally saying is that Jesus in his very nature is deity. He is God. He's not like a God. Jesus is God. If you want to know what God looks like, what God acts like, how God functions, look at Jesus because Jesus is God. He's in this form of God because he is God. He's in his very nature and essence God. Jesus claimed himself to be God. In a conversation with some religious Jews, he said this. He said, The Jews responded to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham who lived 2000 years prior to this conversation? They're saying, Jesus, you're not even 50. How in the world do you know who Abraham is? How how can you claim to have seen Abraham? Jesus's response, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, but I am, meaning I've always existed. And he's even referring to his name being Yahweh here. He's saying, I'm the God of the Jews. I'm, I'm, I'm him. I've always existed. I'm God. So what do they do next? They pick up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he's it's blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. Paul, in another letter to the Colossian church, he said this, In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2.9. Paul saw Christ. And he's saying, listen, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity is in Jesus. So Jesus is God. Check out this quote by C.S. Lewis. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes this statement. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Paul starts, it says, listen, you need to have this humility amongst you when it becomes difficult to love because Jesus is God. Well, why does he start there? Why does he need to remind the Philippian church that Jesus is deity? Now think about this. If Jesus is God, then he holds the highest position, the highest authority, the most power. He obeys no one. But then look what, look what he does. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to force upon us. Now think about this. This is crazy. Jesus is God. He's always existed. He holds the highest status, the highest authority. And even though he has every right because he's God, he refuses to selfishly cling to his godness for his own selfish benefit. He says, no, if my being God can help you, then open arms. Open arms. I'm not clutching to it like a child with a toy saying, mine, 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 this godness, it's mine. And although it is mine, if, if I can share, if I, if I can help you see that I'm God and it will help you, then that's who I am. I want to be selfless. I want to serve you. He lowers himself. And this is Paul's point. And then he goes on, he says, verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And the fact that Jesus takes on the form of a servant tells us that Jesus understands the struggle of obeying when it's hard. Think about that. God obeying. Mind blown. But Hebrews tells us he learned obedience through suffering. Listen, that should tell you something about our God. How selfless and humble he is. And that's Paul's point. He empties himself. Well, that word empty we, comes from a Greek word where we get this word called kenosis. And it means self-emptying, a voluntary pouring out. Well, what did Jesus pour out? What did he empty himself of? And I'll tell you, there's been debate upon debate for centuries on what Jesus truly emptied himself of. I'll tell you what he didn't empty himself of. He didn't stop being God. He didn't empty himself of his deity or his godness. How do we know this? Well, as we said, Paul wrote in Colossians 2.9, In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus did not empty himself. He didn't, when he came to earth from heaven, he didn't stop being God. He continued being God. So then what did he empty himself of? Let me share with you what I believe he emptied himself of. I believe he set aside the privilege of being with the Father and the glory that comes with being with the Father in heaven. Jesus prayed this to his Father in John 17. He said, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. It's kind of like Frodo leaving the comfort of the Shire to go save Middle Earth. All right? Go with me on that, all right? 
He leaves the comfort of his home to go rescue a people. Jesus leaves the comfort of sitting next to his Father in heaven, the privilege of glory that comes with being the Prince of Heaven, the Prince of Peace. And he says, I'm going to set that aside because there's a people that need me. There's a people that need to be rescued. And what's crazy is these people are actually people who are in rebellion against me. And I'm going to go love them anyway. And so Jesus empties himself of the privileges of his glory of heaven and being from the kingdom of heaven to come rescue a rebellious people. You see, this emptying was not about him stopping being God, but more about him becoming human. The other night we watched an episode of Undercover Boss. You ever watch that show? All right, so this, this episode was the CEO of Chiquita, right? Chiquita Banana. And it showed him in the manufacturing plant. The CEO comes down from his office, right? And he travels all throughout and he um, kind of gets to know the employees and becomes like one of the employees. So he's with this guy in the manufacturing plant. And then uh, he's out in the field with someone else. And he just sees all these different people and what they're doing and just becomes overwhelmed. And he doesn't stop being CEO, but he becomes like his employees, Jesus didn't stop being God, but he becomes like us. Let me tell you something. When it comes to loving, when it's hard to love, there's something here for us. It's going to involve you emptying yourself of something. Pride, selfishness, your comfort, your fear, your wants. So I have to ask myself, what do I need to empty myself of that's keeping me from loving that person that's hard to love? And then he goes on, he says, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this is what's crazy. So here's Jesus, who is God, highest position, highest authority. He becomes human form. He takes on man flesh, right? I mean, he he takes that on. Not only is Jesus 100% God, he's 100% man. I remember a time, and maybe I've shared this story with you before, but when I was in junior high, often my dad and I would go with some guys from church. We'd go play some pickup basketball at a local gym. And junior high years were wonderful years. I had braces and the headgear and everything. I mean, glorious, glorious time of my life. And I remember playing a pickup game with, with these guys, and I was running down the court, braces on my face, all that stuff, and my friend Chris threw me a pass. As soon as the pass went from his hands, he realized I wasn't looking. I don't think he did it on purpose. He said my name, and as soon as I turned my head, that ball hit me square in the mouth. Hurt. Badly. It hurt. And it, the, the pressure of the ball up against my mouth, which rubbed up against the braces inside my mouth. I had strings of flesh inside my mouth, basically hanging down because the metal of my braces had ripped. That's flesh. Flesh hurts. Flesh can be torn. Flesh can rip. Flesh can experience nails on a cross. That's what God did for us. It's what Jesus did for you. It's what Jesus did for me. He took on human form. Why? He tells us to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
You see, he took on human form. And for those of us that know the gospel, we've been grown up in the gospel, we know this. But please, part of my fear is I think we've become so inoculated with the gospel that the cross doesn't mean as much to us anymore. We've lost sight of truly what God has done for us and the humility of Christ. But he says he took to the point of death, even death on a cross. And why? It's because broken can't fix broken. We needed someone perfect to step into our brokenness and not just repair it, but replace it. And so here's God, 100% God, whose name is Jesus. He's unbroken and he comes to us, takes on broken flesh, if you will, and goes to the cross in our place so that those who by faith trust in him have their brokenness replaced with his unbrokenness, his righteousness. That's crazy. That's called grace. Peter said it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. And this should bring such joy to those of us who know Christ, because if you're broken this morning, if you're sins of your past, the shame of your present, the shame of your future, whatever might involve and all that guilt. That's why Jesus came. That's why he put on flesh. Was to remove that from you, to to remove your guilt. That's why he went to the cross, was to take that punishment, that shame that you deserve for you so that you can sit here on a Sunday morning in November and in God's eyes be completely made righteous to him because of Christ and what he's done for us. J.B. Phillips tells a story of a visited planet where a senior angel is showing a younger angel around the universe. And he points out the planet Earth. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's special about that one? That, replied his senior solemnly, is the visited planet. Visited? said the little one. You don't mean visited by... Indeed, I do. That ball, which I have no doubt looks too small and insignificant and not perhaps over clean, has been visited by our young prince of glory. And at these words, he bowed his head reverently. But how? queried the younger one. Do you mean that our great and glorious prince, with all these wonders and splendors of his creation, went down in person to that fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do a thing like that? It isn't for us, said his senior a little stiffly, to question his wise, except that I must point out to you that he is not impressed by size and numbers as you seem to be. But that he really went, I know, and all of us in heaven who know anything know that. As to why he became one of them, how else do you suppose he could visit them? The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. Do you mean to tell me, he said, That he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures of that floating ball? I do. And I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was almost beyond his comprehension. Jesus, who is God, lowers himself to not only lift you up, but first to lift up your cross so that you could be brought to God. 
Let us not forget the context of why Paul is saying this. He's trying to show them Jesus is who you look to and what he's done for you. So when it's hard to love, you don't look at the person that's hard to love. You don't look at the prison guard for Paul and how they're probably going to beat him in the morning. He says, no, I'm looking at Jesus. That's who I'm going to look at. But he goes on, he says, Therefore God has highly, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, verse 10, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a principle here. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 15.33 that humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. And Jesus shows us he's the perfect example of this. Humility comes before honor. Therefore, through his humility and going to the cross, becoming man for us and taking our sin and punishment upon himself on the cross, God the Father exalts him, puts him back to his rightful place, restores to him the glory that he had before he left. It's kind of like the son coming home from his tour of duty and he gets off the plane and the dad's there and they run together and the dad lifts him up, lifts him up and says, you're home. <laughs> you're home. Thank you for serving. Thank you, son. You're home. And he lifts him up. And that's exactly the scene here. Therefore, the father highly exalts Jesus. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, he has the name that is above every name. This past Friday was Veterans Day. And it was an opportunity for us to honor those who sacrificed for our country. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, Jesus has the name above every name because he gave the ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifice of his own life on the cross to bring us to God so that every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that word Lord is so important. It literally means to whom a person belongs. To call Jesus Lord is to recognize that you belong to him. Every part of you, it's, it's kind of like the pledge of allegiance. I'm pledging my allegiance to Christ. And really, verses 10 and 11 is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And again, I think Paul's trying to help them understand that, that this Jesus is not just a, a great moral teacher. He's Yahweh. He's God. And God lowered himself to lift us up. I remember as a kid, my, my dad's first name is Merlin. Merlin. And you can imagine the difference, difficulty he had with that name. In fact, when he was at college, they had him registered in the girls' dorm because they thought it was Marilyn. I said, Dad, what you do? You stick with that or what? He's like, no, I didn't. I'm like, okay. But I remember as a kid, I had great honor and respect for my dad. And as a kid, I, there was a point where I wish they would have named me Merlin Jr. Literally, I was, I, I was serious. I was, I was like, man, I wish you guys would have named me Merlin Jr., right? Because I had so much respect and honor for my dad and wanted to bear that name. And hear what Paul's saying. Listen, if you're in Christ, you bear the greatest name above all names. The name where every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess. And that name is Jesus and if you're in Christ, you bear his name this morning. You carry his name with you everywhere you go. The name of Jesus. And so you have to ask, I have to ask myself, is Jesus Lord? 
Jesus even said, not everyone who calls me Lord has truly made me Lord. There's going to be people who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do this? And you say, you know what? Depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus cannot be your Lord without first being your Savior. And for those who know Jesus as Savior, he becomes your Lord. He becomes your Lord. And so ask yourself, is Jesus, what would it look like if Jesus was actually Lord over my marriage? Lord over being single? Lord over my relationships? Lord at work? Lord in my finances? What would it look like for me to just really release those different areas of my life to him? And say, they're yours, Jesus. They're yours. Let's not forget again why Paul writes these words. He's saying, listen. When it becomes hard to love the person that's hard to love, where you look matters. Where you look matters. You got to look at Jesus. And you got to have the mind of Christ because it's very unnatural for us to want to love a person that's hard to love. But when you're looking at Christ, then Paul says, in humility, you can count others more significant than yourselves. You can lower yourselves to lift others up because you're looking at Jesus, the one who lowered himself to lift you up. I think the Apostle John said it so well in 1 John 4, 10 and 11. He said, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us. That's how Paul starts chapter 2. Since there is an encouragement in crisis. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So what do you do when it's hard to love, church? You love anyway. How do we do that? By looking at Jesus. By looking at Christ. And so this week I want to challenge us. And when it becomes hard to love, whoever that person may be, don't look at them, look at Christ. Look right through them. And you look at Jesus. You look right through that person that's difficult to love and you look at Christ. Well, how do I do that? What's, what's that look like? Let me give you some ways to maybe flesh this out. Maybe for some of us, we need to stop looking at Facebook and we need to start reading our Bibles. Maybe for some of us, we need to stop watching the news and we, start need to ser- we need to start serving our neighbors. Maybe some of us need to stoop so low that we get on our knees and we pray for our current president and the one to come. Maybe before we post, tweet, snap, whatever, <laughs> we read Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and then consider what we're about to say. Maybe we need to go through chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and we need to just make a list of all these different qualities and amazing qualities and characteristics of who our Savior is, Jesus. And maybe like me, and I've been convicted by this this week, I need to get on my knees and I need to ask God to change my heart. To make me a man of humility that's wrapped around truth. A man of humility wrapped around truth. Listen, when Jesus is your joy and it's hard to love, you look at Jesus, the one who lowered yourself, lowered himself to lift you up. Man, can you just imagine with me if we did this? Can you just, just imagine if as a church, this is how we actually responded, right? Jesus said, listen, if you want people to know that you're mine, they're going to know by how you love one another, 
how you love one another. It's not blind, hollow love. It's love wrapped around truth. The truth of Jesus, the truth of his word. But can you imagine what it would look like if we truly loved this way, in humility, 